Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Sherrill. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. Let's jump in this morning. So I read a story this week of a, of a man who worked at a factory in Michigan, and he earned less than $10,000 a year. And he worked really hard to make ends meet for years and years. While he was struggling in poverty, uh, he was also completely unaware that he was actually the heir to a fortune worth over a little over a million dollars. And when he was finally located by an investigator, years after his benefactor had died, the man explained that he hadn't been home, he hadn't returned home, or even been in touch with his family for over 24 years, so he had no knowledge of this. He was away for a really long time, and he had lost track of where he came from, Um, He had lost track of his family, and ultimately, he lost track of really who he was. He was just kind of doing his thing and ended up living as if there was really little to no hope. Sadly, many of us today who proclaim Jesus live this same way, almost as if we are completely unaware of our status as an heir of God through Christ. And too often, we forego the gifts that our Father offers, and we forget how he has released us from the stranglehold of sin and the suffocation of guilt. We, we settle for an anemic faith, choosing the duty of religion over desire and relationship. We ignore the power of the Holy Spirit and the abundant life that he provides, and we forget that there is true joy to be had in the Father and in fellowship with the family of God. Like this prodigal factory worker, too many of us ignore our inheritance and and we exist at a spiritual level of poverty because we've moved away from the intimate connection with God and we end up failing to keep in touch with our father and the rest of our family. We go our own way and, and many of us for a lot of different reasons with no reason really good enough to forsake our identity and our influence and our intimacy and ultimately our destiny. This is the frustration of Paul. This is the frustration of Paul as he pens this letter to the church of Galatia right here. This is it. So last week, J.D. and all of his zany hilarity, if you were here, pointed out in Galatians 3 that we are heirs of God. Somewhere in telling us that we are heirs of God, he talked about really short shorts all the way up to your tonsils. I don't know how that worked out. But somehow it was in there, so we are heirs of God, and we have new identity in Christ Jesus. We're no longer in bondage. We've been set free in Jesus. We are reborn. We're recreated. We're redeemed, meaning that we are not who we were. We're new. We're righteous. We're made right before God. We're justified. We're made just as if we had never sinned in the first place through Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters, and we are heirs. We have a promise. We have an inheritance. Why? Because we have a Father who is the King. He's our dad. Man, I, I, I absolutely love the book. Of, the book of Galatians is one of my favorite, favorite books of all. My life has been so marked by the words of Paul that for the last now 17 years, his message I've adopted, it's, it's just become my message. Galatians 2.20, my life verse, that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me. And now this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To me, it is the most important verse, to me, in my opinion, 
It's the verse in which your Christianity, your relationship with God truly hangs. It's that verse that is definitive in helping you truly understand what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. It's basically saying it is not about us. We die to self. We die to entitlement. We die to agenda. We die to whatever rights that we perceive that we have as an American or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We die to all those things. We are a foreigner in a strange land. This is not our home. And the life that we now live, we live yielded, surrendered to Jesus Christ. He comes inside of us. He changes us from the inside out, or so he should. Powerful verse. And Paul's message here, as I said, it's become my message. I mean, I have to remind myself over and over sometimes. I've shared that with you. This message has provided me the opportunity, the privilege Many times to not only remind myself, but also to encourage others of three things. And I've said this for years and years and years, and I thought it was so appropriate this morning. I love some of the songs that we sing. I think they're just going to kind of fit hand in glove here. But three things that I've said for years. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And remember what you're called to be. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And remember what you're called to be. I mean, what a privilege it is to invite people into an intimate understanding of their identity. And that's not just my privilege, that's your privilege. We're all together, collectively ministers on mission. We have this privilege to live in such a way yielded to the glory of God, completely filled by the Spirit of God, to love people in the way that He loves people, that it would be a fragrance of life, inviting them to know God and find freedom, discover their purpose and make a difference. What a privilege. And when your life collides with the glory of God, when you realize the price that Jesus paid so that that you could know God and, and experience true freedom, when you recognize that you were created with such intentional purpose and design, and when you yield your life to Jesus, you become so gratefully overwhelmed, so gratefully overwhelmed, at least I was. And I continue to be that way in his presence, you also begin to see his purpose for your life. And it passionately begins to come alive in you. That's the prayer. That is the prayer that I pray often over you, church. When you see Jesus for who he is and you begin to realize who you are in him, what you possess because of him, who he created you to be, that you belong to him, that you have a father, God, who loves you, that you are an heir. When you see this, it changes everything. It changes everything. Let's pick up in Galatians 4 this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 down, and then we'll kind of break them apart. It starts this way. It says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son then God has made you an heir. So let's break it down. In Galatians 4, Paul is reminding us here that Jesus was sent 
on a life-giving mission. He came into the slave market of the world and purchased us and freed us that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, when I say the word rights here, it is much different than I was using the word rights and entitlements in our culture. Understand, our heart has to, uh, like, it has to wrap itself around this idea that we don't come in with this, this air of, of arrogance and entitlement. No, instead, we recognize the price that was paid. So we enter in in humility, and then God gives us these gifts. And, and when we look at rights in a family cultural context, we look at it in the sense of this. I have three sons. Everything that belongs to me will ultimately belong to my sons. Do you see it? Whatever I have of possession, most of the times it's funny because when you get to that point where you're inheriting something, the things don't seem to matter any longer, do they? But whatever I have is theirs. I give them my name, etc. So that's what it's, he can't, Jesus comes into the slave market of the world and he purchases us. He buys us and he frees us that we might receive these gifts, the full rights of sonship, daughtership. Everybody just repeat after me. Say, I am a son. I am a daughter. Which one applies to you, right? I am a son. I am a daughter of the Lord. I mean, this is good stuff. We now have certain rights through Jesus Christ, and we can exercise these rights by claiming the benefits of our inheritance in Christ. We can do it right now. The first aspect of our inheritance that we should claim is our identity. It's the biggest and first place that the enemy begins to attack. If he can keep you locked up, not understanding, believing, living into, stepping into the fruition of the destiny that he's created you to do, he's got you right where he wants you. If he can lie to you, manipulate you, distort you, twist you up, he's got you exactly where he wants you. The first, the first, I mean, just the, the very first thing is to understand that you're free. We could stop there. You're free. You've been set free. This is the hardest thing for us to grasp. Because freedom is exactly what it is. It's freedom. You are not who you were any longer. An exchange has been made. You have died to you. He has refilled you with himself. You're different. You're free. Our identity is the first aspect of our inheritance that we should claim. We have identity through our position with him. Verse one, now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. I love the tone in verse one because what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, after I've said all of these things before we get to right here, chapter one, verse one, after I've said all of that, now he's saying, okay, let me just put it this way. That's basically what he's saying when he starts chapter four, verse one. He's saying, as long as the heir, you, is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Theologian John Stott said this, picture a boy who is the heir to a very great estate. One day this estate will all belong to him. It is already his by promise, but not yet in experience because he's still a child, he's still a kid. During his upbringing, while he's young, not of age, although he is already the owner of the entire state in name or title, 
Truly, he's no better off than a slave because he's put under guardians and trustees who acts as the controllers of his person and property. They order him about, they direct him, they discipline him, and he is under restraint for now. But because he is the heir, he is in fact the Lord, is the, the language Stott used, but it basically means he's the owner. But while he is a child, he's no better than a slave. Moreover, or moreover, he will remain in this sort of bondage until the date set by the father. Look at verse 2. It says, instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. See, the Roman father had the discretion to determine when his son was of age to become the legal heir to the estate. So Paul is saying, until that time, the son had no more access to the inheritance than a slave. He's basically using culture with it, saying he's trying to help them understand. He's illustrating, if you will. Until your dad says you're ready, you're not ready. You're under restraint. Until your dad says you're ready, you're under restraint. Verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the elements of the world. Oh, hang on. I think I just jumped ahead. Nope, I didn't. Even in the Old Testament, before Christ came and when we were under the law, we were heirs, heirs of the promise, which God made to Abraham. But we had not yet inherited the promise. Okay, so this is where I want you to really understand what's happening here. We were like children during the years of, of, of upbringing. Our childhood was a form of bondage. And what was that bondage? According to chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 24, we know, of course, that it was the bondage to the law. For the law was our custodian. It kept us in check. It disciplined us. It kept us as a child under the thumb. And from it, we needed to be redeemed according to chapter 4, verse 5. But right here in verse 3, the law appears to be equated with the elemental spirits of the universe or elements of the world. If we were to skip ahead to verse 9, we would see the same language, these elements, this elemental spirits. It's basically called weak and beggarly or weak and worthless, weak because the law has no strength to redeem us, and worthless or beggarly because it has no wealth to which to bless us or satisfy us. Either elemental means the ABCs, think of it as immaturity or naivety. Is that the way to say that? Or it deals with the fact that we were slaves to sin, captive in a culture of corruption. I think it's both and. I think it's both and. But here's some good news. In verse 4, it says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, under, born under the law, according to Paul. God chose the time when Jesus came and gave us our inheritance. So if you see in the first four verses, Paul is basically speaking, and he's, he's illustrating it by saying, yes, you're an heir, but as a minor, as one who's still being brought up, though you own it all, you're under restraint. You're no different than a slave in this way. And until your father says it's time... It's just, it's just who you are. It's just where you are. But then he comes along in verse 4 and he says this. But when time came to completion, God the Father said, now it's time. Do you see it? He sends, he sends his son. He says, now it's time. This is what gives us the permission to understand that there is an aspect of this inheritance that we need to claim right now because the Father has already said the fullness of time has come. I have sent Jesus. Now you are an heir to everything that I have. You're an heir to everything that I have. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption. Everybody say adoption. 
We might receive adoption as sons. Jesus paid the price through no merit of our own so that we could have the full rights of natural-born sons, according to verse 5. In the book of John, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Everybody just look at a neighbor say, you're a child of God right now. Tell them. Look at another one say, you're a child of the king. You have an inheritance. I want you to hear me this morning. Man, this is good news. This is good news. God saw that the time was right. He sent Jesus. He redeemed you. He rescued you. He restored, he remade you. He recreated you into something brand new. And he set you free. And he said, this one I'm pleased with. The father looks down because of the blood of Jesus covering your sin. And the father is pleased. He's so pleased with you. You wear his name. You have all of the rights as a son. I want you to hear this. Listen, Jesus left glory for poverty so that humanity could intimately know divinity. He would come and die our deserved death so that we could live an undeserved but abundant life. That we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. There's this once this ragged little orphan boy who sold newspapers in order to buy food to eat. And every day he would pass by this glorious mansion just this with this amazingly, beautifully manicured, lush and green front lawn. And he would dream of playing on that lawn. I mean, he would, he would, every day he would see it. And he would think, man, what must it be like to live in this home? What must it be like to live in this family? And one day, before he even realized what he was doing, he just kind of marched right up through the gates to the sidewalk, and he, he rang the doorbell. The owner of the home, Mr. Lowry, he opens the door and, and looks down to find this poor, dirty, little, ragged boy looking up with him with a very surprised look on his face. Probably the kid was thinking, what did I just do? <laughs> right? And not really knowing what to do or say, the little boy um, quickly just blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. He says, Mr., do you have a little boy that lives here? Mr. Lowry, kind of amused, answers quickly, and, and he says, uh, no, son, Mrs. Lowry and I, we do not have any children. And this little boy eagerly replies, he says, oh, if I only was your son. He said, I'd give everything I own if I could be your little boy and be able to run and play on this beautiful front lawn. And then in one of the most unusual moments that probably anyone's ever heard of, it's a moment of providence, really. Mr. Lowry turns and calls up the staircase to his wife, and this elegant woman appears and begins to walk down this expansive stairway to see this little boy talking with her husband. Mr. Lowry looks and, and asks his wife, he says, well, dear, would you like to have a little boy? And she says, you know I've always wanted a son. So the tall man Mr. Lowry turns to the boy and says, well, son, come on inside. Let's get to know each other. As the boy walks into this palatial mansion, he keeps his promise. He, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out every bit of money he had. He has 13 pen, pennies and he says, sir, this is all that I have today. This is all I got. Listen, we're just like this little boy. We're just like him. I mean, far too often, we think that it's for somebody else. And then we try to do anything we can to earn it or buy it. And all we got is really 13 pennies. As if we could, if we could buy it. As if we could earn it, right? I mean, as if we could purchase salvation and sonship. 
This older gentleman, he takes the boy's hand. He closes it around the 13 pennies. He says, son, you keep that. He said, I've got more than enough for all of us. And he took the little boy into his home, and he, he adopted him. Bringing him into the family, giving him the right to the family name, along with all that it meant to be a part of the man's family, including the fact that he would inherit the estate. This changed everything about that little boy's life. And that's exactly what God has done for us. That's exactly what he's done for us. We were poor and dirty, beggarly. We were trying to provide for ourselves the best way that we could. We would try to find life. We would try to fix ourselves. What does Ephesians 2 say? But God. And he adopted us and he called us his own and he made us his family. He calls us sons and daughters. Verse 6, and because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Listen, the second aspect of our inheritance that we, we need to claim is that we have intimacy and influence through his presence simply because of his name. We belong to God because of this. He sent, I mean, he sent his spirit. He sent the spirit of Jesus to live within us. That's why we belong to him to dwell in us. He changed our very lives. I mean, his presence completely changes everything, or it should. It should. His presence makes us be more like him. I mean, we begin to look like him. We begin to act like him. We begin to love the way he loves. We begin to live like him, or we should. I mean, he is our father. We are his sons and daughters, and we have influence through the fact that his presence lives in us and draws us deeper into intimacy and knowing who he is. His presence gives us a hunger to know him. Do you ever notice how sometimes married couples begin to take on the characteristics of one another, and before long they kind of favor each other? They kind of look alike. Have you ever noticed that? I've noticed it. Why? Intimacy. Time. They live life together, the good and the bad. They spend so much time with one another. They literally take on each other's traits and characteristics and expressions, etc. I mean, they begin to really resemble each other. And then when they have kids, are you kidding? The kids look like both parents because they're a part of both parents. Kelly knows the parts, so she's like, that's your kid. <laughs> Tell me all the time, right? Amen. Amen. So just this last week, oh, this is a great story, and he's not here anymore. He had to go, so I can tell it. But just this last week, somebody got on Facebook and, and saw a picture of me. I guess they haven't seen me in years, and it's a cousin. You know, we all have cousins. Like, I don't know where they come from. Some of them live in over, overseas, and they say we're worth millions of dollars. You ever get those emails? I'm just, a, I mean, I just don't click it. Um, struggle's real. But, um... Yeah, someone, so someone gets on, it's a cousin, and, and, and sees a picture of me and says, you look just like your dad. So J.D. is in a play, and um, he's playing uh, this character in this musical Shrek. And he, I'm talking to him yesterday because I was asking him, how did opening night go? Oh, it was great. It was great. You know, he's told me, he said, yeah, I've got to be there hours before to put on this makeup and all this stuff. And he says, John, I had to shave my face completely. I haven't done it in years. He said, I forgot How? He said, my lip burns so bad because I think I did it wrong. You know, he's talking about it. He goes, so I'm shaving. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. He goes, oh, my gosh, I see my dad. 
He said, then I got there and I started to put it on the makeup for the plane. I said, oh my gosh, I see my mom. I mean, you know, <laughs> right? He's going to kill me that I told you that story. Oh, man. But God puts his spirit inside of us and it changes us. I mean, we are a part of him. We are his. We take on his characteristics. We begin to look like him. We have intimacy and influence through his presence. And he is intimately aware of every detail about our lives. He's our father. I mean, I see it in my kids. I see it in my boys. They, they kind of are little mini-me's, good and bad. God has adopted us. It's just like that little boy was adopted by the gentleman. We bear his name, and he loves us. You know, there's an unmistakable sound that is one of my favorite sounds in the whole world. And oftentimes I hear it when I arrive home after a long day or when I've been gone on a trip. I absolutely love this sound. And it's the sound of little feet running downstairs or across tile and voices yelling, Daddy. Of course, now my boys are older, so it's like, Dad. You know, they've shortened it, you know. Dad. They're tough, man. And I believe the father loves to hear his kids come running, yelling, Dad. I do. He's our Abba, our father. And because we are his sons, because he put his spirit in our heart, we have access and we have the privilege of approaching. We have intimacy with him. We have identity and influence and we have intimacy. Eugene Peterson, in the message translation, of, or it's not a literal translation, it's just like a, I don't know what you call it, but the message, the Bible message. He words this verse, he says, we have been set free to experience our standing with Christ because God has sent his spirit. We've been set free to experience. Church, I want, to hear, I want you to hear this. Listen, man, the last thing I want you to do is just come to declaration and be educated about who God is. I, I don't want to stimulate your intellect. I want to invite you into Intimacy. I don't want you to just be educated. I want you to experience God. That's the thing I pray desperately every day for you. You just experience him because when you do, it changes everything. It makes you realize, verse 7, that you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then God has made you an heir. I mean, as the Living Bible paraphrases verse 7, we have access to everything God has. Everything. Whatever belongs to Christ belongs to us. We don't need to earn it. We can't buy it. We, can't deserve, we don't deserve it, but it's already ours. It's already ours, and we can begin to draw from it even now. The Scripture tells us that God has made available to us four things I want to point out. Ephesians 1.7, the riches of his grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, lavished lovingly upon you because Jesus paid the price for you. The riches of his grace are available for you right now. Um, the riches of his glory, Philippians 4.19. Man, I so desperately pray that this place would be a tabernacle, a sanctuary where his glory is so tangibly thick that when you walk in the room, you have to slow down as you walk. available right now. The riches of his goodness, Romans 2.4. The riches of his wisdom, Romans 11.33. It's available to you right now. The very mind of Jesus. Right now. Church, we're no longer slaves. We're sons. We're daughters. We have been adopted. We're family. We have access to everything that God has. He's our dad. 
We have nothing to fear. There's no reason for insecurity. There's no reason for insecurity. There's no reason for shame. There's no reason to act like we're some abused kid in the corner any longer. You have a loving father who will never leave you or forsake you. His discipline for you will not be abusive. It will be gentle out of loving kindness to help you, to support you, to remind you who you are and what you're called to be and who you belong to. We have no reason for insecurity or fear. We can have resolve in his love. We don't have to be enslaved to fear when, it, when he has already set us free because we belong to him. Our identity is secure. The enemy, I love that song. The enemy cannot take what you have in him. He cannot take what you possess in Christ. The enemy cannot do that. The enemy cannot change your position of priority to God. We have identity through position and influence through his presence. Ephesians 2, 6 says, he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. We are raised up in Christ Jesus and seated in, in the heavenlies with God. The enemy cannot change who you are in that. He cannot. He cannot. He cannot change your identity. But he will, oh, he will surely try to get you to question it. Again, that's exactly what he wants. Verse 7 reaches this conclusion that those who have received the Spirit are now sons and heirs of God. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Listen, as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 1, and he came back and doubled down in chapter 3, don't be bewitched. Do not be under a spell. Do not be convinced of anything else other than Christ and him crucified and brought back to life on behalf of his glory and kingdom and you. It's not about religion or law. It's about relationship and life. And Jesus, he's the only way to God. He's the only way to righteousness. He's the only one who justifies you. Real talk, family talk, just a second. Let me just ask you. Doesn't matter how old you are or how, how young you are. Would you look in the mirror of your heart this morning and just ask, am I a son? Am I a daughter of the Lord? Have I called out to him and said, Father? Have I, have I examined the palatial mansion and looked lovingly on the front lawn thinking, oh man, if I could only play with dad on that front lawn. Have you... Have you decided, you know what? I'm just gonna go up the sidewalk and knock on the door and say, I wanna be your son. Would you adopt me? I wanna be your daughter. Would you adopt me? The Bible simply says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's it. Are you living in this life? Have you received his spirit? Are you living the life Jesus died to give you or, or would you say that you're just living the lie of religion? Have you allowed the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus to change your life? As the band gets ready, I just want to share this story. Anybody ever seen the movie Cinderella Man starring Russell Crowe? Russell Crowe's a little like Bruce Willis. When you hear his name, you kind of go, ah, rah, 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 yeah, Russell Crowe. He's the man. Cinderella Man, it's a true story about a boxing legend named James J. Braddock. And, um, it was during the Great Depression era that that he made an incredible comeback from a career that he had to leave behind. 
he had been plagued with injury and arthritis and his career was cut short. He ended up having to go on public assistance, welfare. Because he couldn't get work on the docks of New Jersey, which made me strangely think of an 80s song by Bon Jovi. Tonic was his name. Jimmy couldn't work on the dock. You know, it's a good song. Stream it, it's good. So he's down and out, right? And, and he's a, <laughs> I see, I just made eye contact with somebody. Yeah. So he's down and out, and um, he finds himself with this opportunity to get back into the boxing ring. And he figured, you know, this is the way. This is the way that I can provide for my family. So he decides to go ahead and sign up. And it's dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous for him to do it. He, he hadn't done it in a long time. And, but this time it's different because this time there's like a purpose. There's, there's something deep in him, and he, he begins to win. Fight after fight, he begins to win. And ultimately, he inspires the whole country with his perseverance in the midst of great hardship. As his comeback begins to build a lot of steam, he keeps remembering and thinking about the faces of his children and the face of his wife and how important it is for him to provide for them because he loves them. And finally, Braddock wins his way into this showdown with the world heavyweight champion named Max Bear. Now, Bear is a vicious dude. I mean, he's notorious. He's known because he actually killed two men in the ring before. So in the days before the fight, he ridicules and threatens and mocks Braddock. And as the world looks on, there's this great concern for Braddock's life. All of a sudden, the big day arrives. And Braddock's wife sneaks down backstage into the locker room just moments before the fight is about to begin, before they're about to send him out and start. And with this tender fierceness that can only come from a loyal wife, she locks eyes with her husband. She gets really close to him, and she stares deep into his eyes as if into his soul. In his soul. And she's about to say some words to him that she wants him to hear very clearly this is what she says she says you remember who you are remember who you are she goes on she goes you're the bulldog of Bergen you're the pride of New Jersey you're everyone's hope you are our kids hero and you are the champion of my heart James Braddock that's what she said so spoiler alert here's what happens in the movie (laughs) if you're like Netflixing later don't do it I'll tell you Of course, he wins. He wins the fight. Listen, when we remember who we are, it makes all the difference. When we remember who we are and who we belong to, who our Father is, it makes all the difference. Remember who He's called you to be. He has called you out of darkness. He silences every lie. No other voice has the right or privilege to define you the only way He can. So what voice do you listen to? What voice have you been hearing? By his blood, you've been adopted into his family. You wear his name. You have the same privileges of a natural born son and daughter. You take on a new name and a new identity. We're no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. The enemy can't take that. He can't change that. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare him to the nations. For more podcasts and teachings, 
visit declaration.org slash podcast. Now to live, I've come away.